Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. As I said it many times this morning, as I've been saying it for months, uh, the most uh, important thing is to get vaccinated uh, with the first vaccine offered to you. Uh, It is how we get through this. Every vaccine for use in Canada has been judged safe and effective by Health Canada. Uh, We all need to get vaccinated to get through this pandemic. Okay, so that's the prime minister uh, speaking about vaccines, obviously, but this comes off the heels of the recommendation yesterday from NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, with regard to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And and once again, it feels maybe like there's some mixed messages. So essentially, NACI is saying that uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is a good vaccine. If you're 30 years and older and it's available, you should get it. Unless you'd prefer to wait. And that's where, you know, we start to get into some confusing territory. Well, what do you mean I should wait? You just said I should get it. Should I not? Are some vaccines better than others? You know, and and do we want people vaccine shopping? You know, when when it comes to vaccines, you know, whether it's the routine vaccines, the influenza vaccines, do we ever ask who makes it? Do we have any idea who makes it? It's like, well, hang on, which vaccine is this? Maybe I'll come back when you have this other one. But obviously, there's been a lot of focus on these COVID vaccines and who has developed what and what kind of vaccine it is and what its efficacy is, both in the clinical trials and the real world. And we're following all of this very closely. But as lay people, we're trying to make sense of it all. So how do we reconcile all of this? Because, you know, maybe maybe there are some important differences between these vaccines. Maybe there are some various aspects when it comes to the risk profile that Canadians, uh, Canadians need to be aware of. And that can be difficult to communicate to people. Well, joining us to talk a bit more is uh, someone who certainly understands this stuff and is a pretty good communicator to boot, uh, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease specialist and researcher uh, at the University of Toronto, based out of the Toronto General Hospital. Dr. Bogosh, appreciate you making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back, Rob. So, I don't know. I mean, is, is NASA getting a bad rap here, or did they make a, a mess of things yesterday? Okay, there's the content, and then there's how it's communicated. Yes. Uh, obviously, I think that most people would agree that the communication wasn't ideal. I think that's fair to say. Uh, I also, I know you had uh, Prime Minister Trudeau talking, and I, I mean, I got to say, I, I agree with him. And let's just reconcile both of these comments, Nassie's and Prime Minister Trudeau's. Here's how you come to that conclusion. Whenever you're deciding, you know, to get to that conclusion of take the first vaccine available, they're all good as per health Canada. I think through through this through this thought process. Number one, what's the benefit of the vaccine? Well the obvious benefit is it protects you and they all have very good protection. It also protects your family and your close contacts. That's great. Okay. Number two, what are the what are the risks? Well we know that there's a rare, but not zero percent, but still rare risk of these blood clots. And they're dangerous blood clots. Okay. Gotta be transparent. Can't sweep it under the rug. Gotta 
go to tell people about them. Okay, number three, what are the alternatives? Well, the alternative is not getting a vaccine. That's a problem. Or the alternative is waiting around for another vaccine that you want, which, you know, obviously you can get COVID and get pretty sick in that time. Okay, and then number four is the context. Uh, The context is Alberta. Well, you're in Alberta. I'm sitting in Ontario. Alberta has the highest rates of COVID-19 in Canada, the United States right now. Never before in Canada have we had this much COVID-19. I'm standing on the Toronto General Hospital. I can literally see the hospital right next door to us. Next door to us, that's the hospital for sick children, where we're admitting adults into the pediatric ICU. We've got nurses from Newfoundland coming in to help us out. We've got tents set up in front of some hospitals because we have to put patients in there because we're running out of room. We've canceled scheduled surgeries throughout the entire province of Ontario so that we can have an all hands on deck approach. Like by any metric, this is a public health emergency. And you have a potentially life-saving vaccine. You should enable people to make an informed decision to choose to get this vaccine or not. That's as simple as it is, right? A life-saving vaccine, communicate effectively to enable people to make an informed decision. And when I go through that exercise of risk, benefits, alternatives, and context, the answer is take the first vaccine available. Given that NASI is very narrowly focused on vaccines, and given that NASI makes recommendations, they don't set policy, is it, is it an unreasonable or an unfair expectation to have them come out and, and frame it the way you did? Or does that fall to Dr. Theresa Tam? Does that fall to the health minister? Does that fall to the provincial health officers and health ministers across the country? Who needs to take the lead role on communicating this to Canadians? Oh, well, I mean, like, and now herein lies the problem, right? You've got Health Canada, which are the regulators, right? They determine safety and efficacy, and and they will look at even manufacturing data, for example. Like, they'll look at all that, and they'll give it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. NACI makes recommendations. They're just recommendations. And in pre-COVID times, many people not in healthcare might never never even heard of NACI, but they're the ones who talk about the measles, mumps, rubella schedule. They talk about the flu vaccine schedule. That's what they do. And they're good. They are. Now, we might disagree with them on their messaging here, but in general, in pre-COVID-19 times, there's very little arguments with what NACI does, and most people just buy into what they say. Then, of course, you've got your provinces. You know, the provinces generally adhere to NACI. They don't always. If they veer from NACI, they don't usually veer too far. So there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and everyone has a role. Um, I don't know what we're going to see with the various provinces. I think some provinces might veer because they... They, they will. Some might. And some might say, you know what, we'll stick with J&J and AstraZeneca for 30 and up. And that's okay, too. I just, yeah. As long as we're communicating effectively, as long as we're really talking about risks and benefits and, and enabling people to make an informed decision, then we're doing something right. But you've got to frame it in the right context. Right? There's a ton of COVID out there. We're admitting younger and younger people to hospital. Like, at least frame it appropriately. You know, and there, there was a concern that we talked about, you know, people are confused or people will delay getting a vaccine or maybe it contributes to vaccine hesitancy. On the positive side, though, when we saw the AstraZeneca vaccine opened up to the 40 plus crowd, we saw an enormous amount of demand. And I think that was really encouraging. So where do you come down on this? I mean, are, are we worrying too much about the mixed messages or are there still some legitimate concerns here? No, I think there's legitimate concerns. I think there are mixed messages. I think all of this. Whenever we have you know, conversations like this, I think it just comp- continues to erode trust in public institutions, continues to erode trust 
in vaccinations. And of course, it doesn't mean that we all have to say the same thing. We don't. You have to celebrate diversity of opinion. It's extremely important to have uh, freedom of thought and, and debate on the matter. But on the other hand, too, I think we also have to recognize how this is framed and we have to do it in a fair, in a very fair manner. And, you know, I said it once or twice before in, in, in media, so I guess it's not necessarily a secret. But, like, listen, I, I personally think this is a good vaccine. Like, I, J&J and AstraZeneca, like, you saw very senior political and public health leaders get an AstraZeneca vaccine. Yeah. I mean, my wife got the, my wife got the AstraZeneca vaccine about a week ago. Like, I, I personally have recommended it. And, again, you think about risks, benefits, alternatives, and context, and, that was the right move. I have zero, zero regrets about any of that because it, mm-hmm. it, it does the job. It's a good vaccine. And I mean, we're seeing in the real world. I mean, it's it's done a tremendous job in, in the UK. Um, you know, South Africa switched from AstraZeneca to Johnson & Johnson, but the, the latter seems to be really helping the situation there. You know, and that, that's part of where I think there's been some mixed messages that we're focusing on on the clinical trials and when were they done, where were they done? Those are important factors. What is the real world data telling us? Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, I mean, maybe they've, they've kind of got a, a bad rap in terms of some of these factors. I think they did. I think they did. Now, it doesn't mean you sweep the blood clotting issue under the rug. Right. Absolutely not. You've got to be completely front and center about that. You have to give people information so that they can make an informed decision for themselves. But again, it's all, it has to be framed in a fair manner as well, right? Alberta is, it's sad, but it's on fire right now. Like, Alberta's in trouble, right? I mean, this is really a time where you really need to deploy every single vaccine that you've got as quickly as possible. Of course, there's more to it than that. You need sound policy as well, but the vaccines will help, as will sound policy. Uh, and there's many parts of the world that are in the same boat. Listen, if, if this was New Zealand, you know, we might be having different conversations where you have zero cases, but we're not. Right. We're, in a, we're, in a, we're in a public health emergency. Let's treat it like an emergency. <laughs> and you've got something that can really help at least make it available and then enable people to make an informed choice. Now, it's interesting. I think we got some clarity today that there may be some more AstraZeneca coming. But for those who have had the first dose and are wondering, you know, are we going to get more? When are we going to get more? Where does that leave us? There is the potential. And I know we're trying to get a better understanding of this. There's some encouraging data coming as a big study on this. But what about the possibility of, of mixing vaccines? What about the possibility of an mRNA vaccine as the second dose for someone who had the AstraZeneca? So here's a prediction. And again, I could be off and like, so for asterisk here there's this is total speculation here but like yeah that study is going to be we'll probably have the results of that study the next week two three weeks from now but i i I imagine mixing and matching is going to be completely safe and completely effective and it's not outlandish to think that people who got a first dose of astrazeneca will be able to get a second dose of you know pfizer or moderna if they like I, i think that's probably what's going to happen having said that gotta wait gotta see the data first before that, there's a policy change. I just wouldn't be surprised if that's the direction we we end up going in. And we'll see. And I know the U.S. is uh, close to making a decision on the 12 to 15 uh, age group. Alberta has a, opened it up for those with underlying conditions. Do you think Canada is close behind in, in terms of yeah. Uh, younger Canadians? Yeah, yeah. And I, I hope to see that soon. I mean, there's safety and efficacy data. We're always a little bit behind the United States. Um, but... We also have to vaccinate other priority groups earlier. I wonder if we're going to start to see that happening 
maybe in the summertime. I, I can't imagine it would happen later than the beginning of the school year. And I think this would be really helpful, right? You can create safer schools, create safer uh, activities for, for youth, you know, sports and arts and, and stuff, and like really help us slide towards normalcy. I mean, if you can quell epidemics, you're doing something right. If you can quell outbreaks in these settings, you're doing something good. So I think uh, I think this will this will really provide a lot of good. And it's pretty clear, like as ugly as May looks right now, I think the end of May is going to look so much better than the beginning of May. Let's hope so. We'll leave it there. Always appreciate the insight, Dr. Bogosh. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. You as well. Uh, there you go. Originally from Alberta, by the way, Dr. Isaac Bilgosh at the uh, University of Toronto, Toronto General Hospital, infectious disease physician, and also on the Ontario Vaccine Task Force. So his thoughts on what NASI's trying to say and, you know, where they have some valid points, but where some of the communication maybe breaks down. And yeah, it's, sadly, he's right about Alberta. It's, it's a mess at the moment. These vaccines can help. Let's not waste that tool. Now, here's the thing. I mean, initially, we were going to have the Johnson Johnson vaccines go to Fort McMurray and Banff. Now there's some uncertainty about when they're going to get here. The good news is that as other vaccines arrive, we do have some flexibility. So not only has the Alberta government announced that teachers are now eligible for vaccines, they've also announced that we've managed to find 20,000 vaccines that will be split between Fort McMurray and Banff, and we'll open that up to uh, 18 and older in those communities. So we, we have a bit more flexibility. But yeah, look, I mean, we've got these vaccines approved. We're trying to get out of this mess right now. This is our ticket out of that. Let's, let's make use of this. We did get another big announcement yesterday from Premier Jason Kenney, and that was that teachers, Alberta teachers, are now eligible for vaccines. And there's been a lot of pressure on the government to prioritize teachers, you know, given the risks inherent with that job right now and some of the challenges we've been seeing in schools. Now, the timing of this announcement is interesting because, of course, uh, for the most part now, Grades 7 through 12 across Alberta have shifted to online learning. Uh, We certainly have seen big increases in the number of cases uh, amongst children, and not just teenagers as well, but in particular in that age group. Uh, So we do still have some challenges when it comes to uh, schooling in Alberta, but joining us to talk about it all is Jason Schilling. He is president of the Alberta Teachers Association and joins us on the line here. Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on today. It was an interesting uh, press release uh, the ATA put out yesterday, very to the point. Uh, I think two words about time, I believe, is uh, how you put it. But just uh, your thoughts on, on the vaccine announcement yesterday, first of all. Well, I know that we have been uh, av- advocating um, to have teachers, and not just teachers, but all school staff. I mean, I've worked in the school my whole, my whole life. I work with um, EAs and librarians and custodians and bus drivers. It's important um, for everybody who's working in a school to be prioritized with vaccinations because the government has, been, um, has kept schools open during the pandemic as a priority. And so the safety of the staff and the students who are in that building need to be a priority as well. So we've been advocating and talking to government about this since December, and so finally to see um, teachers to be um, added to that list of priority was, was a good thing. I mean, obviously, there's, there's a challenge that, that stems from supply, and, you know, we do have to prioritize certain groups, and I think part of the, the conversation we've been having is, well, if we're going to bump somebody up, does that mean, you know, a different group gets bumped down, and so there's some tough decisions to make, but do you think we could have done this sooner? Was, was there some room to maneuver, do you think, on this front? 
I would have liked to have seen this announcement come sooner, and it's not a question in my mind of, of who do we bump out or who, who do we not bump out. I think everybody deserves, who's working on the front lines, um, to be vaccinated. And I always said with government when I talked to them that we need to secure a healthcare system first and protect the most vulnerable. Like that comes first in what we saw in the first phase, but with the second phase as it was announced um, we're just questioning why we weren't seeing school staff as a priority within you know to a b c or d mm-hmm. and that's where the conversation really started from now the premier suggested yesterday that you know given the the vaccine availability that, that we've had thus far that a number of teachers have already fallen into some of those categories and that maybe as many as 60 percent of teachers have been vaccinated i mean was was that a surprising number to you or, or what do we know about it at this point well, when I watched the press release, I thought he said school staff, and the association has been doing its own uh, surveying of its membership throughout the pandemic. And our latest, we call them pulse surveys, and the latest one just um, closed last Friday. Our preliminary data from that survey, because we asked about vaccinations, indicated about 37% of the respondents had been vaccinated so far. So I'm not sure where the where who was included in the premier's numbers, but that's what I know from the, the survey that we've done with our membership. Okay. And so what do we know about the timing here going forward in terms of, you know, when appointments are, are going to be open? I think it's it's as of today, isn't it? Yeah, it was supposed to open today at 8 o'clock. And so I've not seen um, too much from from teachers in terms of messages to me about how that's gone with them to avail, you know, the availability to get to appointments. But I know a lot of teachers yesterday were eager to um, get in line so that they can do their part to, you know, make sure that they're safe and their students are safe in their communities as well. Because as you noted at the top of this, that uh, we're seeing the increase of cases within our communities. And when we see that in our communities, it's reflected in our schools and teachers very much want to make sure that school can be as safe as possible. Yeah, and 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 I think that's what we all want. I, I think unfortunately, it just it, it it's not the reality at the moment. And uh, you know, the tough decision has been made to to shift uh, a lot of uh, learning to to online. I guess we do still have, for the most part, elementary schools open, except for a couple of communities. I think Fort McMurray for sure. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit about the the landscape in the moment and and how we got to this point. Well, we last fall when we saw schools move to. Um, you know, if you recall, late November, it was announced that uh, high schools, 7 to 12 junior highs, would be going online for the rest of the month um, of December and then the first part of January when everybody was online. We were concerned then that we would be leaving at that point with 14% of COVID cases um, in our schools having a COVID case or an outbreak. Um, that when we would come back in January, without strengthening the return to school plan, that we would get caught back up in this cycle again. And that's exactly what's happened. And now we see um, regions that have gone online. We have 33% of schools in Alberta have a case or, or an outbreak. And uh, those numbers are staggering. And so we need to make sure that we are having conversations about and need to see action from government about how can we strengthen the plan that's already in place, do we need to up uh, the use of PPE, um, hand sanitizer, uh, support for uh, teachers and EAs and principals, especially who've been doing a lion's share of uh, um, contact tracing right now. I even have conversations about if it needs to be moving online as the safest spot right now. That conversation needs to happen, though we know it's not ideal. Teachers want to be at school with their students. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, I mean, obviously, you know, the situation in Alberta has been uh, deeply affected by the the rise in the the variants, and you know, certainly a change, for example, quarantine rules, etc. And it, it does seem odd to me that you know, given that we we knew that the variant posed a different kind of challenge, did anything really change in terms of our approach to schools? Um, not from the government's point of view of what right. they were doing in terms of their plan. Um, we've been asking for more transparency around numbers and what are the criteria if uh, a division, for instance, says we want to move X amount of schools to an online situation for a short period of time. Um, that was still, that's still a little bit fuzzy in terms of what that criteria is. So we have opportunities and we've put out as an association to government, you know, easily attainable things like let's split our largest classes right now that are 35 to 40 students so that they can have better social distancing. Let's provide supports for substitute teachers who, if they have to unfortunately isolate, they're not without income for two weeks. There needs to be some support for them as well because there's all these variables there, but we've not seen much action on government's part to make that happen. And it did always seem odd to me that we, we supposedly had this kind of in-between hybrid solution where, you know, we could alternate kids. Uh, you know, maybe kids would go to school two days a week and we'd have reduced numbers in schools and maybe we could spread things out a little bit more. And we never really tried that, did we? No, it's never been enacted. And I've, I've asked about that. You know, we've always seemed to go from, you know, scenario one where everybody's in school to scenario three. But scenario two has not been... Um, one that has been put in place, and I think it provides, you know, it provides its own set of challenges for teachers and students and their families, but it also provides, uh, you know, an opportunity for students to space out better in high school because they'd only go to school every other day than be online every other day. Um, and so, I mean, there's some benefits there, but there's also some drawbacks there, but we've never used it. Which is interesting. And of course, there's the whole disruption of, uh, you know, having cases in schools. And I know one family, their kid was home on isolation for two weeks, was back for a few days and back in isolation again. And I mean, that impacts teachers, too. That's what happened in Calgary. That's what happened in Edmonton. You got so many people isolating, you just run out of teachers and substitute teachers. And, you know, that's that's the other side of all of this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's really hard. And, you know, you talk about students who are isolating and sometimes they're isolating you know, at home in the basement by themselves. And that, you know, yeah. there's a lot of concern about that. And I've talked to some teachers who've been isolating four times already this school year, and that's a lot as well. It's a big impact on their families. And this last survey that we just did, it did talk a lot about um, the concerns that teachers have for the mental health of their students, as well as the mental health of themselves and their colleagues with the impact of this pandemic. And it's definitely something that we need to have a conversation about as we leave this school year and get into next year because there will be a big mental health um, uh, sort of pressure point that we need to address. No, no kidding. Now, the other thing, too, and we had the announcement recently about, you know, we're going to start rolling out rapid testing to schools in, in some of the, you know, the big centers and some other locations, but I think there's some uncertainty about getting kids back into school and what the rest of the school year looks like. Do you know what this is going to mean for the, the rapid testing rollout? I'm still waiting to see some data and information from government about the rapid testing program that they've they've done um, to see how it's working in schools. I've talked to a couple of teachers who've worked in those buildings and said, you know, um, it's worked really well on with high school, especially with staff. But there's some things, you know, as you're working through the system to work out some bugs on that. But it would be nice to... Uh, 
to see how that's going and what the data is and if it's something that uh, we're still going to need to maybe have in the fall as well as we get towards uh, thinking about the new school year. I know it seems so far away, but we still need to start planning about what will next year look like if we're seeing a rise in cases. Who knows if we will be, um, hopefully we'll be out of this, but you never know. And so we need to be ready for all variables. Yeah, hope for the best, plan for the worst, I, I suppose, exactly. is uh, maybe yeah. how we need to approach it. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Jason Schilling, appreciate your input on all this, and uh, thanks for making some time for us here today. You bet. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. You as well. That is Jason Schilling. He is president of the Alberta Teachers Association. And so some reaction to the announcement yesterday, something teachers had been hoping to hear for a while, uh, that they are indeed now eligible to get their vaccines. But, you know, beyond that, we've got some challenges in the short term, as he says. Yeah, we should be thinking about September, but we don't even know what May and June are going to look like at this point. So let's hope we can get things turned around and let's hope at least kids can finish out the school year in class. And it's interesting, too, and it looks as though the U.S. is just days away now from approving the Pfizer vaccine for the 12 to 15 age group. Now, here in Alberta, we've already made the decision that for kids in that age group who have underlying conditions, they can get the vaccine. Many already have. But uh, you know, we think about what school might look like in September and everything else, you know, that the kids do in their lives. This is a big, big step. And so I wonder when Canada is going to get to that point, not just in terms of the approval, but having supply. Obviously, it's something we're, we're keeping a close eye on here as we get closer to the deadline. Someone who's a little bit closer to the situation is Canada's Consul General in Detroit, former member of Parliament, Joe Comartin, and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Mr. Comartin, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me, Rob. So, I mean, as I say, we're about nine days away from this uh, deadline that the uh, governor of uh, the state of Michigan had set. But what, what, what are you hearing on, on the ground there? Where, where are things at, as far as you can tell? Yeah, Rob, if I can, it's actually May 12th when it's supposed to uh, order to close. But in, but in fact, um, you know, I'm feeling quite confident um, that that's not going to happen. Um, the, uh, the litigation that's going on right now um, would, um, you know, certainly militate in favor of thinking that way. Uh, but I think more importantly, the uh, way this process works in, the, uh, in Michigan is that the governor can issue that order but in fact, it cannot be enforced without a confirmatory uh, decision by order by a, a judge. And um, the likelihood of any judge doing that is very remote. But I think maybe even more importantly in terms of process, if the state was going to move for that, that order, um, they would have had to have done so by now uh, since we, you know, we're only seven days away from it. Right. So, uh, we're certainly not expecting it, and I'm not expecting it uh, anytime soon after that. Uh, there's, you know, a huge issue here in terms of the jurisdiction between the federal level in the United States and the state, and uh, that litigation could drag on for, well, literally for years. So what's the, the position of, of the, the Canadian government here? What's the position that, that you're trying to, to get across to officials there in terms of our position on this uh, and, and the potential impact it could have on, on Canadians? Yeah, the, the Canadian government has been consistent in their, in their position that they support the ongoing use of that, that pipeline. They're supportive of the, of the tunnel that Enbridge has agreed to build. Uh, to replace it and uh, increase the uh, the safety of, of the line. Um, we've been fairly quiet until the order came out from the governor. And since then, the federal government has 
has been very active, along with the premiers. I want to acknowledge that the premiers of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and and Quebec have been very active in uh, in pressing uh, the governor to to reverse or suspend that that decision. Um, We, uh, starting with the new uh, administration in Washington, the prime minister had a direct conversation with him about this as, as part of their initial contact. Four or five of our um, uh, cabinet ministers on the Canadian side have met or had discussions with the cabinet members on the U.S. side. And at the uh, officials level, our embassy staff have been meeting with uh, staff people in the uh, State Department in the United States. Well, that's that's good to hear because uh, you know it certainly sounds like this would have some very serious implications. What what are the concerns? I mean, what might this mean for those provinces you mentioned and other Canadians if this pipeline were to be shut down? Well, there's no question that the flow out of Alberta would would certainly be uh, retarded for a, a period of time, anywhere from a few months to perhaps as much as a year or two, before they were able to find alternate sources of shipping which would probably be by train and truck. Uh, those facilities are not available in any sufficient quantity to, to pick up the slack uh, at this period of time. So uh, Alberta would certainly suffer uh, significantly uh, for that period of time. Um, and then if you move uh, uh, towards the east, uh, Ontario and Quebec are at serious uh, risk with regards to, we already mentioned the impact it would have on the on the airport in Toronto, basically, uh, they would have to find almost a hundred percent alternate source yeah. for their uh, for their fuel. Um, the cost of propane would go up dramatically, uh, and uh, Ontario is a significant market for that propane. Uh, it, it's having the same impact in terms of the propane in in Michigan as well. Uh, the refineries in um, in Sarnia, uh, who are ultimately the final recipient of this, but there's also refineries in in Michigan and in Ohio that receive this. Uh, we've had extensive discussions with the people in Ohio, and they literally think they would have to shut their refinery, uh, at least one of them, mm-hmm. because they simply could not move enough uh, by truck or train into their site. Um, so those, I mean, the lots of jobs uh, that we're talking about here on the Canadian side are in the thousands, probably the tens of thousands, at least for initial periods of time, until we find ways to find alternate sources, which again may take may take years to, to do. Now, of course, this is concerns the Strait of Mackinac. Uh, this is where Lake Huron meets Lake Michigan. And, you know, the, certainly the governor of Michigan does not have a monopoly on, on being concerned about the Great Lakes. And, you know, certainly from Canada's perspective, it, it's certainly, you know, we're, we're very much concerned about these issues too, aren't we? Well, very much so. I mean, Rob, I grew up in this area um, in, yeah. in Windsor, Ontario. All my life's been spent here and. You know, I'm an environmentalist as well, and you know, certainly Canada has a uh, arguably a better reputation in, in terms of protecting the Great Lakes than the United States does, because there's been more sporadic uh, than ours has. We've been much more consistent in, in worrying about the, the quality of the, of the water in the Great Lakes. All right, so we'll see what happens uh, over the next few weeks here, but uh, I do appreciate the update here this afternoon, Mr. Kumartin. Thanks for this. Thank you again for having me. I think it's really important for people to understand what's, what, what is going on, and hopefully we'll ultimately be successful in the supporting Enbridge's intent to keep it open. Let's hope so. We'll keep a close eye on things. Thanks again. Uh, that is Joe Co-Martin. He is Canada's Consul General based in Detroit, uh, so a voice for the federal government uh, right there in the state of Michigan. You know, pressing our case.
So we'll see what happens. As, as he said, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the legal mechanism hasn't really been triggered here yet. And again, Enbridge's position seems to be that, look, I mean, without that, plus whether the Michigan governor actually has the final say on this, you know, given both of those factors that as far as they're concerned, it'll just be business as usual come May 12th and May 13th and beyond. So it's, uh, it, it'll be a period of uncertainty for sure once we get past those, uh, those dates and there's no resolution to this. But um, yeah, look, certainly there's, there's a potential of some real uh, economic blowback for Ontario and Quebec and yeah, for, for us out west here as well. And I know I, and whenever this comes up, I hear from folks and say, well, you know, maybe it would be a good thing if Quebec and Ontario had to kind of learn the hard way about how valuable Alberta is in supplying them with fuels. But what, I don't know. What what makes us think that they don't understand that in the first place? So I'm not so sure about that side of the argument, and I hope it doesn't come to that, but we shall see. All right, we got a lot more to get to here this afternoon. Coming up after uh, 2.30, we're going to talk about a situation uh, involving the University of Alberta and a research arrangement with China. Are there some security concerns here? Certainly there have been warnings from intelligence agencies about this sort of thing. We'll talk about that coming up uh, after the bottom of the hour news. This is the Chorus Radio Network. All right, so for not the first time, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is going to be offering a formal apology on behalf of Canada for a past historic wrong. Like I say, there have been uh, a number of these already, and, and not just with this prime minister. Previous prime ministers have done so as well. And indeed, there are those, I think, occasions from our history that there needs to be a reckoning with. There needs to be the acknowledgement uh, of wrongdoing so that we can move forward. So I think in, in principle, there, there's some merit to this approach. But at the same time, I think there's, there's a risk in doing it too much and that it starts to lose its impact. And we sort of water down the concept. As much as the prime minister likes the occasion, likes the stage, likes the emotion uh, of these kinds of um, events, I think it's something we want to be careful with. So we have another one forthcoming, and this stems from uh, a motion passed in the House of Commons in April, April 14th, that will pave the way for the prime minister to offer a formal apology uh, to Italian Canadians with regard to events uh, during World War II. Now, we're much more familiar with what happened with uh, Japanese Canadians, thousands of them uh, put into internment camps, a very shameful episode uh, of our history. And we have acknowledged that and tried to make amends for that. But is this situation comparable? As our next guest notes in his uh, piece in the Globe and Mail today, 12,000 Japanese Canadians were pulled from their homes and interned. There were more than 100,000 Italian Canadians as of 1940. And we're talking about a few hundred that were interned. Less than 0.5%. So what, what's missing from this conversation? Because it certainly does not seem comparable to what happened with Japanese Canadians. So joining us to talk a bit more about this uh, forthcoming apology and some of the, the history maybe that's being left out here. Very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, uh, Michael Petra. Uh, the author of this piece, as mentioned, you can read at uh, Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. He's an adjunct professor of history at Carleton University, editor-in-chief of Open Canada. Professor Petra, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. 
It's interesting because I think a lot of Canadians probably aren't familiar with this part of uh, the Canadian World War II experience. But where did this whole business come from that's now likely to lead to this apology, first of all? Well, I think what's likely to lead to the apology or the the motivation for the Trudeau Trudeau government is, I think they're hoping that it will be popular amongst voters. I don't want to be too crass or cynical, but I think that is likely a motivation. And then there's the... There's the assumption, which you know is not rooted in history, that this is uh, a similar violation of human rights uh, as was the uh, deport- deportation or the expulsion from the coast uh, and then the internment of, of, of thousands of, of, of Japanese Canadians uh, during the Second World War. Um, the problem is they're, they're not comparable events. I mean, the Japanese Canadians were targeted as an ethnicity. Um, I mean, the numbers are, I think, about, as you mentioned, about 12,000 were interned, but others were expelled and forced to work on on farms. It affected about more than 20,000 Japanese, and they were targeted because of who they were, Um, women, children as well. Um, It was very different for the Italian Canadians. The the ethnicity was, they weren't targeted because of their ethnicity. This was not a, a measure against Italian Canadians. It was a measure against a very small number of Italian Canadians who were suspected of being fascists, and many were. Uh, the RCMP was certainly not uh, flawless in their investigation. I've spent you know months and months looking at the uh, archival records, and you know they they, you know, they were not uh, they they were flawed. They had they had holes. They they <laughs> they no doubt made mistakes, and no doubt people were interned um, wrongly. But the Trudeau government is planning on apologizing uh, to the entire Italian-Canadian community, as if these 500 Italian-Canadians who were interned uh, were representatives of that community. And the argument that I'm trying to make is, is they're not. I mean, there was there were a small number, and it also I think is a disservice to Italian-Canadians who who fought fascism, who who were not cheering it on um, as as these individuals are accused of doing. And again, some no doubt were, and, and, and some no doubt were mistakenly accused. But we have Italian Canadians that joined the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, took part in extremely dangerous missions, uh, fought fascism in Spain even before the war began. So I think to conflate the experience of these 500 suspected fascists with, you know, 100,000 Italian Canadians, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's ahistorical. It's rooted in falsehood, and I think it's insulting to the memory of, uh, of Italian Canadians that, that that fought fascism rather than than championed it. Yeah. Well, and that's that's an important part of the historical record is that there were fascist groups that existed in Canada at the time, and certainly the the regime of Benito Mussolini was very much trying to foster that abroad, weren't they? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, the diplomats in in, in Canada were were quite active. And they had some success. Um, you know, in my, in my piece, I cite uh, uh, some, some you know excellent scholarship, and you know the estimate there I think was about three thousand five hundred uh, uh, Italian Canadians were, were members of fascist groups. Um, again, I mean, this, out, of, out of a population of over a hundred thousand, no, I mean these are presumably mostly adults. So the you know the the figure gets a little bit more concentrated, but this is still a minority of uh, it's a minority of people. But it's not, you know, we're not talking a couple dozen. 
you know, fascism resonated among some Canadians, and not just Italian Canadians either. I mean, you know, uh, we read the history of Canada in the 1930s, and you know, there was there was sympathy. There was sympathy for uh, uh, Francisco Franco, you know, the fascist uh, dictator in Spain. Uh, you know, you hear, uh, you read accounts of, uh, of people marching through the streets of Montreal, shouting in French, you know, down with the communists, down with the Jews. I mean, you know, there was this. This existed. This is this is this is part of our uh, part of our history. Right. Yeah, and it's an important detail because, as you say, I mean, even if the RCMP made mistakes in how they went about this and maybe due process as we think of it now wasn't fully extended to everybody, I don't think anyone would question, or I would hope nobody would question, the importance of investigating all of this, the importance of understanding to what extent this threat existed at home. And if fascist groups were operational in Canada, that's certainly something we would expect the RCMP to deal with, no? Yeah, and look, I mean, I think you can have, I think you can even have a, a, a fair conversation about whether people should be, should be jailed for their beliefs. I mean, again, I think we have to be careful not to look too much through the present lens. We have to imagine what it was like in 1940 when you know fascism was on the on the march all all over. But I mean, I, w- I would be, I would even accept that argument that you know you should be able to you know champion fascism just as you should be able to champion you know Al Qaeda today if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, we need to imagine things in the 1940s. Um, so I'm not even arguing that people should be jailed for their beliefs. I'm simply arguing that Trudeau should not say, should not apologize to all Italian Canadians. He should not pretend that these people were somehow representative of the entire community. They weren't. Um, that's that's taking liberties, and that's that's well, it's worse than that. It's 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 twisting. It's it's, it's hard word it's lying about history so that that's as a historian that that's kind of the the, the root of my of my beef with this apology yeah. well the thing there may be individual examples that we could point to um where there were wrongly accused individuals right or people who were, were caught up in all of this but we look at these these kinds of apologies they're they're much more sweeping than that it's not just about certain individuals didn't get a fair shake it's that canada as a whole was targeting as a whole a certain ethnic group, and, and in that context, as you've laid out, it, it, it doesn't really apply here, does it? Not in this case. No, I mean, you know, did did Italians suffer discrimination in the 1940s? Sure, you know, amongst you know many other many other ethnic groups. And as I said, the Japanese were targeted for their ethnicity. Um, you know, I'm not downplaying you know the discrimination past or present in Canada. Um, I'm simply asking that we uh, assess it accurately. And we don't um, we don't manipulate it for what I suspect is for crass political reasons, and I, I, I think that's what's happening here. That's 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 my suspicion, if I can be frank about it. Indeed. Well, we'll see well, how this all plays out in the weeks ahead. As mentioned, uh, folks who read your op-ed, it's up at theglobeandmail.com. Michael, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Take care. All right. All the best to you as well. Uh, Michael Petro, he's a uh, adjunct professor of history, Carleton University, editor-in-chief of Open Canada. Uh, more at opencanada.org and uh, his piece of the Globe and Mail today. So saying there, there's a whole other side to this history. If we really want to understand what was going on in the early 1940s, then by all means, let's have that conversation. There certainly were active fascist groups in Canada. We knew that. 
And historians estimate that there were as many as 3,500 Italian Canadians known to have been involved in those organizations. Again, a small fraction of the overall Italian Canadian population, but nonetheless, that existed. It was not exclusive to Italian Canadians, obviously, and no one is suggesting that. That there was certainly sympathy for fascism or active fascist groups that existed in Canada in the 30s and 40s. The fact that the RCMP would want to be aware of all of this, would want to investigate all of this, is clearly, even through today's lens, sensible. Now, the way in which they went about it is certainly open to, to some debate here. But what is the nature of this apology? It, and it doesn't seem to be narrow in the sense of we apologize to those who are wrongly caught up in the RCMP's investigation of the fascist threat that existed in Canada in the early 1940s. This is meant to be an apology to the entire Italian-Canadian community. As Michael Petru writes, to claim that Italian-Canadians were interned because of their ethnicity suggests that they were representative of the Italian-Canadian community. They were not. Suggesting otherwise erases the history of Italian-Canadians who fought fascism at home and abroad. Take, for example, Charles Bordelata. During the Spanish Civil War, when Mussolini sent soldiers to fight and die alongside the Nazis' Condor Legion, Bordelata left his home in Hamilton to fight the fascists in that prelude to the Second World War. Or Frank Misericordia, father of four, is working at Ottawa's Chateau Laurier Hotel during the Second World War, was recruited by the Special Operations Executive, the SOE, to infiltrate German-occupied Italy and liaise with anti-fascist partisans there. Five attempts to secretly land him on the Italian coast were unsuccessful, but they took their toll, as one of his superiors noted in a 1944 memo. And consider, finally, all those Italian-Canadians who joined the Canadian Armed Forces during the war. They recognized fascism for what it was and stood against it. It's their story that should be celebrated. Mr. Trudeau has instead chosen to subsume their heroism in a false, overly broad narrative of ethnic victimhood. This is interesting, and it comes off the heels, I think, of all the focus last year on the, um, you know, the vaccine research deal that fell apart between the Canadian government and a Chinese pharmaceutical company. Uh, but it speaks to some of the more pressing challenges we're facing beyond just, you know, vaccine development. And when it comes to technology, uh, it's something we, I think, want to be really careful about in Canada in how open are we being in sharing secrets with uh, an adversary? And I think we're at the point now where when it comes to the Chinese government and certainly its approach toward Canada, I think we very much need to recognize that that's what we're dealing with here. And so all of these kinds of things need to be viewed through that lens. Story from the Globe Mail this week, the University of Alberta is carrying out extensive scientific collaboration with China that involves sharing and transferring research in strategically important areas such as nanotechnology, biotechnology, and artificial intelligence. In some cases, professors and researchers at the university have set up companies and joint ventures with Chinese companies and state institutions to commercialize Canadian-developed technology. As far as the University of Alberta is concerned, they say we have received no directives related to China from the federal government, but otherwise declined to discuss its research activities. Certainly Canada's intelligence community, U.S. intelligence uh, agencies have warned about this kind of thing as has our next guest. 
uh, joining us to talk a bit more about the potential implications of all this. We're pleased to welcome the program uh, here this afternoon, Marg McQuaig-Johnston, Senior Fellow of the Institute of Science, Society and Policy at the University of Ottawa, Advisory mm-hmm. Board Member with the uh, Canada-China Forum and the Canadian International Council Board as well. Let me pull it up here. There we go. Finally, Margaret McQuaig Johnston joins us on the line here. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the program. Good to be back with you, Rob. Well, like I say, I mean, this is something that you actually wrote about recently, and you know, we're warning about the potential security risks of these kinds of relationships. So, what is the concern here, as you see it? Well, uh, there are concerns at a number of levels, and I started um, looking at this issue back in 2015 when I was finding that Chinese. Um, the Chinese authorities were insisting on joint ventures between uh, Western or foreign technology companies and Chinese companies. Uh, So you couldn't go in 100% um, with your company into China anymore. You had to be in a joint venture. And I was finding that uh, whereas the American joint ventures were often 50-50 or 51-49 ownership ratio, the Canadian technology company joint ventures were often 80-20 or 70-30, even 90-10, with with the smaller portion of the Canadian company, even though it was 100% the Canadian technology that was being made. So why was the Chinese partner um, getting so much of the share? And then I saw that over time, uh, the Chinese partner would try to take over the whole uh, joint venture and ease out the Canadian partner. And that sent up big red flags for me. And I started looking at things like the branding of the products had to be in the Chinese name and that had to be able to sell to third countries, um, which would undermine direct sales from Canada of the Canadian technology. So there were a range of things that I was starting to see. And, um, and I've now looked at 26 Canadian technology company joint ventures, as well as another couple of dozen American and European. Uh, but we're really the ones that have been taken to the cleaners. Well, and explain what the risks are here, because it's not as though universities are dealing with state secrets per se, but th- this is all really valuable technology, and there's a reason why, you know, the, the Chinese government would be interested in this. So wh- where do we see the security risks? Well, a big big one for me is the policy that Xi Jinping has really ramped up in China in the last couple of years, which is the integration of military and civilian technology development. And so in areas like AI, biotech, nanotechnology, some of the ones that you mentioned at the outset, um, th- those all have applications in the Chinese military. And uh, the civilian scientists and engineers in China are compelled now to partner with military and uh, scientists and engineers in China. And so they have to uh, transfer technology to the military. What that means for Canadian researchers is that if they're partnering with a Chinese university and a group of researchers there, chances are those people are feeding the Chinese military, which may mean that Canadian technology will be seen in weapons and and, uh, equipment in China, which I think is the last thing we would like to see. So I think we have some some, um, issues with that. And in addition, there's some partnerships with 
companies like SenseTime, which um, are surveillance companies. They're part of the big surveillance state, which is now such a, a, a big factor in, for everyone living in China, and especially those in Xinjiang, um, the Uyghurs. Yeah. So what kind of policy, what kind of response is, is necessary here to ensure that, you know, we're, we're aware of these potential risks, that universities are aware of these potential risks? What kind of oversight or regulation does all of this need, do you think? Well, it's difficult because there's academic freedom, and a researcher in Canada is allowed to and and uh, and can uh, partner with anyone in the world. So it's really their personal decision uh, as to who they will partner with, and and so the university administrators, you know, the people like the VP research, they get it, they understand what the risks are, and certainly they're uh, getting advice from. Uh, the Canadian Security and Intelligence um, Service and others in government who are warning about these um, these these uh, holes that researchers can fall into, but the but the administrators are reticent to um, come down and 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 really make researchers give up some of their projects. I think that. Uh, individual professors need to take some responsibility for whether their research should be uh, could be passed on to the Chinese military, and the universities themselves, I think, are playing a, a dangerous game here with some of the funding. I've noticed that, and this is multiple um, multiple universities across Canada are um, uh, are obfuscating and covering up some of the Chinese funding that they're getting and um, and aren't making available to the public uh, the agreements that they're signing with China. And so, um, you know, there, there was a, a case last week that was in the uh, Radio Canada, the French service of the CBC, that talked about a, a Chinese company called BQ, BGI, and it's uh, the Beijing Genomic Institute. And they're... Um, lending um, pieces of equipment at a million dollars each to universities and a hospital across Canada. And the data there of the personal genomic data information of Canadians is being sent to China in a data sharing agreement. But we're not allowed to see that agreement. And so I think universities must be much more transparent than they have been uh, about what funding they're getting and how it's being used. Well, and, and I suppose various universities are doing this to varying degrees, but it, it does appear as though the, United, or the University of Alberta is doing a lot more of this, so they've gone a lot further than other universities have. Is that, is that your perception as well? Well, in fact, they've taken a leadership role. I think they've wanted to uh, expand their relations with, with China, and it started, well, it's been doing that for, for years, but back in 2010, uh, they led something called the Canada-China Academic Forum, which would take uh, senior um, people from uh, all the big research uh, universities across Canada to China for meetings uh, with Chinese counterparts to talk about having dual degrees and and talk about research collaborations. So other uh, other universities participated, but it was the University of Alberta that led it. 
All right. Well, something to keep a close eye on. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. I uh, always do appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Good to talk to you, Rob. All right. Likewise. Take care. Uh, that is uh, Margaret McQuig uh, Johnston, who, as mentioned, has written a lot about this issue. Uh, she's a senior fellow with the Institute for Science, Society and Policy, the University of Ottawa, on the board of the Canadian International Council and the Canada-China Forum. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's not just about research or academic freedom. I mean, there are some potential security implications here, and it's something that we want to be really careful about and, and heed these warnings, too. Right. I mean, why, why, otherwise, why would CSIS care about, uh, you know, the kind of research the universities are doing? So I think when they're speaking out about these risks, I think that's something we need to, to heed. But look, I get it from the university's perspective, you know, these different opportunities that present themselves or the additional funding that becomes available to pursue this research. It can all be very alluring. But there's a whole other side to this we really can't overlook. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Rickenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. So as mentioned, in about three hours, uh, the Premier is going to be speaking. Sounds like we'll be getting some new health restrictions announced, and we'll have that for you live, as well as a follow-up press conference tomorrow morning at 10. Uh, a few other things we'll get to in our time remaining here this afternoon, but I wanted to get to this story. This is an interesting one. You probably recall way back in 1995, the federal liberals introduced what became known as the Long Gun Registry. Uh, that owners uh, of long guns, because, of course, handguns were and still are required to be registered, but uh, that extended to all firearms, uh, that all of those firearms needed to be registered. And it was a, a real source of frustration for law-abiding firearms owners, and it certainly did not appear that the registry made any meaningful difference in terms of uh, public safety. So fast forward to 2012, uh, the federal conservatives had run on a promise to um, scrap the gun registry, and uh, they finally did so. And the intention was to, to really scrap it, that we're not only going to stop the mandatory registration of firearms, we're going to do away with the whole system. The whole database was to be destroyed, and that's what ultimately happened, or so we think. So now there's a really interesting question out there. To what extent does this data still exist? To what extent are the RCMP still making use of this? You know, I think coming off the heels of what happened in High River in 2013, there's Maybe a lot of uh, mistrust, perhaps, when it comes to firearms-related issues, certainly between gun owners and the RCMP. And this kind of thing might take that just to, to a whole other level. So does the RCMP possess data that they should not? I mean, that's a pretty big question, regardless of how you feel about the, the registry or firearms regulations. So joining us to, to explain what's come to light here, what it might all represent, is someone who's uh, found himself at the center of this uh, new twist, uh, criminal defense attorney Edward Burlew, who focuses on firearms-related uh, legal matters, joins us uh, on the line here this afternoon. Mr. Burlew, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for calling me up about this, because this, this is a concern uh, to mm -hmm. gun owners, but it goes further than that, because... It, it generally talk, uh, reveals that there may be secret um, files kept on other points, too. This may just be part of some other trend that has to be investigated by Parliament. All right. So explain for us what was supposed to have happened in 2012 and the law passed ending the firearms registry. That, that All of that data was supposed to be deleted, correct? It was, and then that was bolstered again in the, in 2012, and then there was a regulation passed. Vic Thays was the uh, Minister of Public Safety back then, and he made sure of that. 
And then they also asked the commissioner of firearms then to testify in front of parliament. And that person said, we've gotten rid of all the data. And then they sent an auditor in, and the auditor audited uh, the RCMP, the registration system, and said there isn't any data. And then the information commissioner said, I'm going to sue the uh, public safety minister because you got rid of the data in a nasty way. And, uh, well, that led to changes that uh, made that all okay. But the RCMP testified on oath for the federal court to say, it's all been destroyed, and it cannot be brought back. We can't reassemble right. this. It can't be revived. And that was all done by 2014. And, you know, I mean, that was official, official. It's the law of Canada. It was confirmed to Parliament, to the courts, even the Supreme Court of Canada, when it was going through the issue of whether or not Quebec could access the data from the registry of the, uh, you know, the Canadian firearm system, a copy was kept by the court. It was sequestered. And Quebec found out they couldn't use that data. They had to start from zero. And the Supreme Court of Canada ordered that that one copy be destroyed. And it was, of course, because that's the Supreme Court of Canada making sure of that. So I was surprised, to say the least, because... I've done over 800 of these cases in the last 23 years of the 42 years I've practiced law. And here in in late um, 2019, I got a list of my clients' non-restricted firearms, everything about them, serial number, make, model, caliber, and the firearms identification number, but not his particular registration certificate and it came from the office of the registrar of firearms i thought this was very curious yeah so we went and we asked the uh we we went through the information commission uh workings and we asked the registrar of firearms for my client to get his records from the registrar of firearms came back we have no firearms registered to you well sitting in my file was this record which said all these guns, which he had owned, and by the way, which the police had seized now, they weren't any part of the uh, of what he was accused of doing. Something totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, they all matched up. And it was associated to his firearms license. And this was just the, the local police. It would have the OPP, but it was the local police enforcement who had this. And then it showed up again with another client 100 miles away. And then it showed up again with another client 200 miles away. Now I was concerned. Mm-hmm. I took I, I could not do anything with this because as a lawyer, when I get disclosure, I can't propagate that out and publish it. I need the permission of the Attorney General of Canada, of Ontario. So I got a hold of the Ontario uh, Attorney General's office, and I said, can I give this uh, in a limited way just to members of Parliament, because they will be concerned about this. It took a couple weeks. I got the permission. I got permission of the client to also give it to a member of Parliament, and I gave it to several members of Parliament, and they looked at it, and they asked more questions of me, and they looked, and they looked, and they they did due diligence. 
And then off it goes to uh, a journalist, and the story is broken. Is there any other possible source for this information other than what was in the registry? When is there I any other doc- explanation when I see a document, when I, look, yeah. on one of the documents, okay, it listed a firearm that was a non-restricted. My guy had a couple handguns. Yeah. They should be on the record. They were. And then it listed a firearm that he owned in 2012, that he'd sold sometime after that, that the police had not seized. And he had the registration for it, but that was in, a, like, you know, a shoebox kind of thing. The police didn't even take yeah. that when they came in. And once again, it wasn't related to firearms why it was charged. So the problem being, there was only one way you could have this information. And that confirmed it. Oh, I'm sorry. We've got to shut this stupid thing off. Okay. <laughs> no worries. And I'm so what on. happens is, that to me confirmed that this information could only come from the historic records. And they, it all, every time, this was on a document that came from the Registrar of Firearms. It said, from the Office of yeah. the Registrar of Firearms. And it was dated 2019. So this might not just be the RCMP. This might be the OPP in Ontario, other police forces across Canada. What do you mean, right getting there. this? Or having this, still having this information. Oh, absolutely. It seems like any, yeah. to me, these were just ordinary patrol officers. Ordinary. Trusted patrol officers, let's be yeah. honest. These honest police officers doing their job. And they said, can I get some information on this on this person who we're charging? What about their guns? And the Registrar of Firearms said, here, here's some information. Here's their restricted, and here's their, uh, here's the guns they owned prior to 2012. Now, they didn't put it in those words, but they said, here's the non-restricted firearms that we know he had. That's not supposed to be able to be told. It's supposed to be gone, kaput, torn up, gone. Yeah. So, who needs to answer for this? I mean, is it's the RCMP need to explain themselves? Do we need the uh, you know the federal justice minister to take a lead on this, or you know, well, where do we go from here? Let's look up and down the the chain of command. Yeah. The Registrar of Firearms has to say why do they why are they publishing this? Why do they right. maintain this? They're not supposed to. Then you have to look at the Commissioner of Firearms. Why is this being maintained? Why are you allowing the registry to have this? And then you've got to go up the chain. You've got to ask the commissioner of the RCMP why. And then you got to go to the big boss. you got to go to the minister of public safety and emergency preparedness. Because that's the person with the ultimate authority and command over this over the activities of the RCMP right down to the Registrar of Firearms and say, how did this happen? I don't know. Who knows? I don't know how far up the chain of command the knowledge goes. I don't know why, you know, in the past, all all these checks, the audit, the testimony to courts, the testimony to um, uh, the, the parliament, didn't mention this. 
Was this hidden from those people by somebody else? And then why did it come back? You know, I, I, like I said, I've done hundreds of cases, and I, prior to getting this one in 2019, I never got this. And I am very fastidious about getting as much of the police disclosure as I possibly can. Sure. I try the patience of the Crown Attorney trying to get yeah. all the disclosure, because I find people's innocence is sometimes hidden in some little fact that, you know, is sort of around the corner and then scratched down here and there in police notes. Mm-hmm. Well, it's amazing to me. So it needs to be inquired about. It has to be dealt with. And people have to be called out and made responsible for this. And most Absolutely. importantly, it has to be gone. As it should have been gone. Well, exactly. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll continue to follow this uh, as well. Mr. Burley, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Much appreciated. Thank you. All the best. That is uh, Defense Attorney Edward Burley, who has mentioned, uh, you know, he's worked hundreds of these cases. This is his specialty. Uh, so he understands these documents and uh, what he's seeing before him. And so, yes, it was quite shocking to see that and then to see it come up in other cases. There's a piece in the Toronto Sun over the weekend, as mentioned, quotes another defense lawyer uh, who says much the same thing. That, you know, he remembers seeing these documents back when the registry existed, but hasn't seen them since then. And yet here they are. Now, the security expert, who asked not to be identified, says he thinks a lot of police forces in Canada have some form, some copy of the registry in one way or another. If you want to make a political argument that the registry should still exist or the government should bring it back, well, then fine. You can make that argument. And if the government wants to do it, then do it. Go ahead. Set it up. But you're going to be starting from scratch legally, given everything our guests laid out. All of the decisions that were made that mandated that this data was to be destroyed. If it wasn't, we got a big problem. We'll take a pause here. Rob Breckenridge with you. You're listening to the Chorus Radio Network. In the southeast, there's daytime construction on Glenmore Trail at 68th Street. Eastbound drivers are seeing delays between 5 and 10 minutes from 52nd Street. Over on Deerfoot, looks like you're in for a pretty smooth drive at the moment if you're headed home to Airdrie, a 15 to 20-minute drive from Memorial up to Yankee Valley Boulevard. Southbound Deerfoot, also about a 15-minute drive from 17th Avenue down towards Auburn Bay and Seton. And northbound up Crowchild Trail, about a 20-minute drive from Glenmore up to 12 Mile Cooley Road. This Friday through Sunday, Mr. Loop will donate $2 from every oil change towards the MS Society of Canada. Take care of your car and people with MS. No appointment needed. For the 770-CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Phil Jensen. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770-CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.